a Cosmere can be a confusing place. From Alamancy to Surge Binding, there's a lot to look out for. We're your hosts and escorts to the realms. I'm Griff. And I'm Alex. And, and this, this is, is the Silverlight Guide to the Cosmere. Welcome back, bookworms. We have with us today a guest host. If you've been paying attention and are uh, aware King, uh, aware of our Way of Kings review, yes, and uh, an episode we did on the Rosharan magic, we have with us Nathaniel from Generic Entertainment, the YouTuber. Welcome, Nathaniel. Hello. Thank Hello, you. thanks for having me on again. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, we, yeah, always happy to come on. We enjoy your insights. I have been keeping up with the videos you've been posting. I... Oh my god, dude. The... And I had to rewatch it because it was so good. The one where you were like, well, what if we cancel generic entertainment? And, and it's you talking to yourself... And and it's just utterly brilliant the way you did it. So I, I'm, I'm not doing it justice explaining it here, but it's hilarious and people need to go watch it. And then not long after that, you did fan theories for Stormlight. Yeah. Which was also hilarious. Some valid points in that. So if you haven't checked out Generic Entertainment's YouTube videos... Go do yourself a favor. They are wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for watching. Of course. And now we're going to dive into the reason you're here, listener, which is you saw the title of the podcast episode and we're like, oh, Oathbringer. Wonder what they're going to talk about. Well, we are indeed <laughs> going to talk about Oathbringer. And we have an outline and we're not going to throw it away. We're going to keep to it as best as we, we can, can yep. which, again... Your first, mileage may vary. <laughs> mileage varies greatly. So this first part will be as spoiler-free as possible. Right. We'll give our reviews. We'll talk about the pros. We'll talk about the pacing and the Sander Lanch, which is a weird thing to talk about without spoilers. But it's just, you know, I feel like if people know that the book has a really solid ending... They, they may be more inclined to enjoy it. Uh, and then we'll move into a spoiler section where we'll discuss characters and plots and theme. Um, we are not going to summarize Oathbringer. No, no, we are we not. We are going to instead point you to Daniel Green's YouTube video, uh, the summary of Oathbringer, where he and Murphy Napier go through the plot in 40 minutes, which is impressive that they managed to get it down to that and yeah as much as we may be talking about specific scenes or instances or things like that trying to summarize the book as a whole would be just too tall of a task for the length of the podcast we like to keep so. right it would probably i mean i think the 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 easiest summary would be like shh to unite them and then that's it. <laughs> so that's that's the book in a nutshell. Yeah. But here we go. Okay, spoiler-free review. Um, I have here on the outline to give a brief synopsis of the book. Done. <laughs> yeah, that's... 
that was as far that, as we're gonna get. That was as far as we're gonna get. Uh, yeah. This book specifically focuses on Dalinar. Yeah. With his backstory, but it actually opens with a character named Venli, the Knight of Gavilar's death. Which, if you've read The Way of Kings and Words of Radiance, you know that each of them starts with the Knight of King Gavilar's death yep. from a different character's point of view. And this one I found particularly interesting. But it focuses on Dalinar. But by this time in the Stormlight Archive, we really have a breadth of characters that we care about, or at least mostly care about. And there's a lot of plot here. So moving on from that, how do we feel about the book? I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's probably actually one of my favorites. That's fair. Of of what we have currently. Out of all of Sanderson or well, out of Well, out of Stormlight. Stormlight Archives. That's fair. Nathaniel, where 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 yeah. does Oathbringer lie for you? So I, I love Oathbringer. I really enjoyed it. it. I think it definitely marks a turning point in the Stormlight Archive. Okay. Um, where... It, the the structure of the story changes a lot. Not only do the books get a lot longer, um, and not only does the world open up a whole lot, a whole lot more compared to the first two books, um, but we also have we have more powerful characters. Mm -hmm. um, just we have a lot of power scaling. Um, we have uh, just the world changes in some pretty immense ways, and um, it, a lot of the criticisms of this book are on how um, like the story starts to maybe feel a little unwieldy. It gets really big, really fast. Um, and, but I, I don't know, I, I never really got too lost in this book. I never thought that the story got too big because mainly because I just enjoyed this world and the characters so much that it was really easy for me to get to through 1200 pages of uh, just reading about them and their misadventures. Uh, and and it is it is quite a slow book compared to the first two books as well. Like the first half in particular is pretty slow, mm -hmm. I think. But I don't think that's a problem at all. Like I still really enjoyed it. So yeah, it's it's definitely different from the first two books. I agree. It definitely has a different feel. And I think that was probably intentional because if we take the Stormlight Archives as a five book series rather than the four book series it is now, it marks the midpoint. Right. Yeah. So it does make sense that it, it would maybe be the pivot to directing the story towards another direction. And really, each Stormlight Archive book is three books. So. Yeah, that's true. True, true. <laughs> but I wanted to briefly mention, as I was reviewing for this podcast, something struck me. And I think. And. and I've been doing a lot of my own creative writing and I have been taking a lot of leaves out of Sanderson's books because his lectures are great on yes. YouTube, his, mm. and, and the people that have reviewed his lectures and condensed it and so on. So the three main things I think people will follow along with here is, is promises, progress and payoff. Right. Yeah. And Oathbringer reviewing this, reading the synopsis of chapter one, Oathbringer has a really clear promise, which we'll get to in spoilers. Really great progress and an amazing payoff. Yes, it does. So taking those things... And, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it, it has multiple payoffs too, I think. Oh, like yes. It, 
at, at the ending, there's like 10 different payoffs all at once. That's true. That's, that's true. The, that's common of the Sanderlands. Yeah, right. yeah. The Battle of yeah, the yeah, yeah. Field is um, probably one of the better Sanderlands. I agree. I agree with that for sure. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's give our out of 10 rating and move into the spoiler spoiler territory after. So, Griff, out of 10. Uh, 8.5 to 9. Okay. So 8.75. Yeah, that actually, yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, 8.75. There we go. That math degree coming in handy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nathaniel, what would you, what would you rate it? I'm going to say 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10? Yeah. Nice. I'd give it like an 8.325 repeating. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's irrational. So, so you rate it infinite. It's infinite. Yeah, no. Uh, it's I. I think. I think actually, I should rate it higher than that. I'd probably give it like an eight point nine. I going off of my previous rating system, where where anything nine and above is something somebody has to read, in my opinion. Oathbringer is three books into a fifteen book series because they're all three books um, into a five book series. So. I'm not going to say like here. Here's Oathbringer. It is an amazing book. Go read it. Uh, <laughs> to anybody, I would. That's fair. They That's would, fair. They would yeah. really need to read Way of Kings. Well, yeah. I mean, Radiance. I think. I think. However, that kind of goes without saying. Well, yes, but I am qualifying my own rating That's because fair. I like to live complicated. So eight point nine, nine, nine repeating. I'll need, I'll throw the repeating you know, in there. This is very tangential, but I do think it's kind of interesting how, uh, you know, Words of Radiance is the highest rated book on Goodreads. And partly it's for that exact reason that if you are going to read Words of Radiance, you're probably already invested in epic fantasy and are like willing to read really long books. Sure. Yeah. So um, there's like a, it's like a little bit skewed towards people who oh. are going to finish the book in the first place. It's, it's like survivor bias. <laughs> yeah, survivor yeah, yeah, bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it absolutely is because yeah. you're really only going to get the reviews from the people that finished it, you know. Like. Sure. Well, yeah, from the people that, that are very, at least somewhat invested. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Cool. But I still think the, the good reviews are well earned. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And check out our Words of Radiance review with Stormlight Memes. Indeed, indeed. From TikTok. She has an incredibly insightful section near the end of the episode that left me speechless. <laughs> yes, so, it did. Yes, it did. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I knew the timestamp because it's like a two hour long podcast. Tonight. Yeah, it's, it's one and of unless you're episodes. like, yeah, unless you're like really into listening to long form podcasts, uh, it I want to say it's near one forty five, one hour forty five. Probably. Uh, yeah. OK, so uh, we are now moving into the uh, spoiler spoiler section. Uh, I hope that didn't come across too hard. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, that's fine. Uh, I'm, I hope you're awake now. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely awake. <laughs> uh, okay, spoilers. How yep. about the, the late hours? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in in our in our outline here, we're we're going to talk about characters. There are a lot of them. There are. Uh, we don't need to talk about all of them but as, as we mentioned dalinar is the main focus of this book with his flashbacks so 
I want to go ahead and for those of you who have stuck around after the spoiler warning, even if you haven't read it, I am going to spoil the promise, progress, and payoff here. Right. So in the first chapter, the promise is made that Dalinar is going to unite the countries of Roshar. Yes. going to unite the kingdoms, whatever uh, political systems they have. And it struck me as I was reading that somewhere, I was like, oh, oh, that's the promise. And there was definitely progress and payoff. And I was like, it's so clear. It's beautiful. The progress happens in substantial ways where he figures out he can take the other people into the visions. So he starts taking the rulers into the visions. He visits the Azish and uses his powers to speak their language and impresses them. And then, of course, the payoff, you know, at the end, he does, in my opinion, unite them. So that's why Oathbringer's so good. Boom. Done. Yeah. Review, review well, then there's, also, <laughs> then there's also um, the, the flashbacks as well, which mm. I think is, is one of the, the standout parts of Dalinar's story in this book. Because... I mean, I think they're the best flashbacks in the series, probably. Mm. And a, a large part of the reason for that is because of how much Delinar's past was wrapped up in mystery before now. Um, we, it, it really shows a completely different side of him. We, we thought after the first two books, we sort of knew who Delinar was. Right. And then Oathbringer comes along and, you know, just within like the third chapter, we get this flashback where he's, you know... Uh, raiding a village and like killing all these people and it, it it's kind of a little bit shocking um Very. and getting to see the slow, pro slow progression from that moment to the way he is at the beginning of the way of kings is just very satisfying and it it, it works because even though we already know where he's going to end up we don't know how he's going to get there since uh, uh you know because of the curse of the night watcher he didn't remember most of his past or a lot of it at least that's right and You've hit the nail on the head. The fact that Sanderson takes a character that we see as an upstanding, trying to be a moral guide, not only to himself, but to other people and really following codes. It, in my opinion, it speaks to me and probably to a lot of people that there are things that we try to adhere to, to make ourselves better. And then Sanderson goes and throws us, oh, this person has had has done horrible things and i think that's one of the things that really stands out about dalinar's character progression is the fact that we have up through the first two books and part of the third we have established dalinar as this very moral upstanding person he holds himself and his and the people under him to almost impossible standards right in in this striving for excellence and striving for moral uprightness and and all of that and then we do get these flashbacks to him being honestly just somebody who is truly reprehensible a genocidal maniac act. yeah a genocidal maniac war crimes left right and center regardless of whether or not you there, know, there, yeah there, the geneva there, convention right there's no geneva convention <laughs> on roshar obviously but still just these truly reprehensible uh actions during the war and Something I found that is actually true in life as well as, and I think I think uh, Sanderson at least very much well shows it in this book, is that nobody is ever just one thing. 
no matter how mm. what face of a person you see, there is going to be more com- complexity to that person than what you see. And whether or not you have any desire to, you know, explore that it doesn't really matter. It's just everyone is going to be more complicated than the face that you see. And I think that this shows that about Dalinar is that some people only saw him in his role as the Blackthorn. That's yes. that was it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, of course, to to them, he is a warmongering, you know, genocidal, maniac. genocidal maniac. And then we as the audience have only seen him as this upstanding person who is grieving after his brother's death and is trying to be a more upstanding and righteous person by following the way of kings. And we have seen him progress through his role as the bondsmith. And then we get to this and and we kind of have to struggle with that dichotomy of what the people on Roshar know Dalinar as versus who we as the audience know him to be. Yeah. And what's kind of funny is that this these flashbacks shed a lot of light on the way Dalinar was treated by other characters in the first two books as well. So that when you go back and reread some of those scenes, it makes a lot more sense why everybody is so cautious around him and why, you know, Sadias is is frustrated with Dalinar because he he keeps trying to uh, bring back the old Blackthorn. He keeps trying to uh, make Dalinar into something that he isn't anymore. And after reading the flashbacks, you understand why, like, Dalinar used to be a completely different person, much more akin to Sadeas is in the way of kings. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, yeah. I agree. That's, and it's so well done. And I think earlier, Nathaniel, you mentioned that the flashbacks in Oathbringer may be the best. I think part of that may have to do with also that there's action in them as opposed to Kaladin and Shallan's where things happen, don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's very focused in on Kaladin and Shallan weren't experiencing the world. Dalinar was experiencing the world and there was a lot of action, which is appealing to people who like swords and armor, right? I like swords and armor. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I, I actually... Oh, were you going to say something no, no, no. else? I, I thought I was, yeah. um, but then I started thinking about how I said, uh, and I was like, well... <laughs> so go ahead, sorry. Um, well, I, I don't know if that's actually what's appealing about them to me. Because, sure. I, you know, I think Shalon's flashbacks are actually like a close second for me. Okay. Like a very close second. Um, I really love the, the family dynamics in those flashbacks. Mm. And... Uh, the way like the slow disintegration of her house is portrayed. But I think the reason I like Dalinar's flashbacks so much is because of how much growth we see in him as a person over mm. the course of the flashbacks. Like the flashbacks are a book in and of themselves. Sure. Um, it, they cover a much longer time span mm-hmm. than either Kaladin's or Shallan's. And so True. we get to see so much more change in him. Uh, I think I think it's like 30 something years that the flashbacks cover yeah and so it it feels like a a much more complete much longer story and um getting to see you know his his early warmongering days and then his marriage and the slow decline of those days 
then his alcoholism and you know all that whole journey uh it, it moves at a pretty quick pace if you just take the flashbacks alone sure um but still but still it feels it feels very me it feels complete in a way that a lot of the other flashbacks don't sure yeah and i and and uh my intention with the action was just that there is some action uh, I definitely agree that that's not the main draw of the flashbacks uh, for me, but oh, you're fine. Yeah. yeah, I think it just, it, it added an intensity for me that was it different than, than Kaladin and Shallan's. They, they were also yeah. intense in their own ways, uh, especially at certain moments. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's, there's, there's so many like extremely memorable moments in Dalinar's flashbacks, like the moment where, he uh, goes in search of a knife and ends up using the knife that an assassin tries to kill him with to cut a steak, or the moment right. which is apparently ripped straight out of a biography of Genghis Khan, where uh, an assassin tries to kill him and he immediately goes and uh, hires the assassin because uh, of how close the guy came to almost killing him. Right. Um, so th there's just so many moments like that, that that show his character that make it really fun to read. Completely agree, and it turns out Sanderson is really fond of putting real-world things in that have happened into his books. Yeah. And in the latest episode of Intentionally Blank, well, I say latest, the the second one that he did with his friend Scar, Scar from the Stormlight Archives, Ethan, um, they actually they mentioned that in Stormlight Five, one of the funniest, best military stories that Scar has is going to be in Stormlight 5 That's as something fantastic. that happens. So it, they didn't say what. Obviously, they didn't want to spoil it. Right, but, right. Uh, just going off that Genghis Khan bit, I think. Oh, like the real the real man Scar? The real, was in, yeah. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, That's yeah. So cool. His friend Scar, he works for <laughs> Dragonsteel, but he was a technical writer and then went into the military as a reservist, okay. but the MO that he was doing sent him over um after 9-11 anyways uh so he has real military experience and in, and in fact a lot of where the military stuff in the stormlight archives uh comes from is from scar the real person scar uh informing informing brandon sanderson about yeah so it is interesting isn't it uh which so a little uh, piece of advice to all you creative writers out there. Don't be afraid to take something that has happened in the real world, not only in your life, but in, in general, stories in general yeah. and, and fit them into yep. your book if they, if they fit or, or form them into uh, where they might fit in your book. So we've talked about plagiarize reality. Plagiarize reality. Yeah, basically. Boom. Plagiarize yeah. reality. Go, go ahead. All right. No, we're putting that on gonna, a shirt. Nobody's going to bother you. <laughs> I need to make that a sticker. I'm going to. Oh my, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I'm just going to write it down real quick here. Who's, who's going to sue you, God? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, that was. Oh man. All right, plagiarism. It, it is a great source of inspiration, though. Um, yeah. Once you once you start looking at the real world and. Uh, I don't know, trying to figure real people out and, um, you know, writing, even just like journaling, like writing right. things, observations about the real world is such a great inspiration for writing. 
Uh, and even just like taking interesting things people say in conversations and incorporating them into books. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's a it's a awesome way to uh, make a story more realistic and immersive. I completely agree. And in fact, when I am doing my own creative writing, I will go, why am I writing this person doing something so simple and basic? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's because most of life is simple and basic. Yep. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. <laughs> and it, it does offer offer a uh, level of verisimilitude. Right. You can show characters going about their normal everyday to day life like you you there there's a fine line you have to tread. It's kind of like the fine line with uh, dialogue because sure. when you're writing dialogue, you want it to sound real while not actually being real, because when you write dialogue, unless it's very intentional, you're cutting out the us, you're cutting out the ums, you're cutting mm -hmm. out the likes. You're cutting out the random skips between ideas mid-sentence. Right. You're cutting out the getting off track, forgetting what you said. You know, you're get, you're you're cutting out the tangents. You're writing something that sounds real, but it's very clearly not real. Right. And so I think that you have to kind of tread the same line with showing somebody living their every their you know every everyday life you want to make it seem like it's the not boring the kind of banality of normal everyday life while still keeping the reader's attention and probably doing something to move the plot forward right, right. um yeah yeah I, I will i will confess i i actually do like when characters in books break off in mid-sentence or like lose their train of thought or lose confidence halfway through a sentence and just stop talking. I think that there's like, um, you know, there's a scale of realism and dialogue and sometimes taking the scale really far towards the realism end of things can, can create an interesting effect in a book. Um, it just depends on what you're going for. Sure. I, I completely agree, especially if you can manage to juggle that with specific characters where, yeah. Anyways, that's tangent number one. Okay. <laughs> there you uh, go. I think. Yeah. If Sorry not, about that. No, 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 no apologies. The The listeners knew what they signed. Nope, they didn't know what they signed up for. Of course they didn't. Well, now they did. They're getting Oathbringer plus tangents. Plus tangents. It's Tangerines. always tangents. I it's mean, we, we. Sign over cosine. Wait. Is it sign over cosine? I think so. I think so too. Sign over cosine, <laughs> Oathbringer edition. Yes. All right, but as we as we've um, directly alluded to before, this book is really three books, or that's how Sanderson likes to write them. So we have other characters, and I'm gonna be honest. It's been a while. I kind of remember what Shalon was doing, and I kind of remember what Kaladin was doing. And Zeth's bits in the book were cool. So that's where we're at uh, in my point of view. No. Well, let's see. I think Kaladin <laughs> was... Is Oathbringer the book where he's trying to go get his parents? Yeah, at the beginning. He, yeah. does, he does go to them. Right, yeah. right, yeah. That was an interesting... So Oathbringer being set so, so close to the end of Words of Radiance, like... I don't even think a week has passed between them finding Eurythiru, Dalinar becoming Storm Daddy, and <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> I can't. Oh, I can't say that with a straight face. 
Um, Dalinar becoming the Bondsmith. Forgive me, Stormfather, for I have sinned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and Adolin um, offing Sadius. Oh yeah, that happened. Right. That's that happens at mm, the end of end of word of words of radiance. I still think he was completely justified in that. I unpopular oh, sure. opinion maybe but you but. don't like it when i say moash did nothing wrong that's different <laughs> my friend that is very different yeah it's fine it's fine when the the characters you know do horrible things to people we don't like but when they do horrible <laughs> things to to people we sort of like or who seem like they were going to change that's when it's when it gets problematic. It's very problematic. I will. Elokar was sympathetic, so we don't like seeing him killed. I Thaddeus will never was... forgive Sanderson for killing Elokar. And here's the thing about Elokar. So, I mean, we we do joke about the whole, you know, Moash did nothing wrong and like he was justified in killing Elokar and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not even going to necessarily say there isn't a, a case for that. However, the one thing I will say is that if we believe that Elokar was going to say the words and obviously that's that's what he was trying to do before middle of them yep. yeah middle of them he was entering a redemption arc right like the thing that we have to say is that yes people can be terrible people they can do terrible things and we can still support them in their attempts to do better right and that's what Elokar was trying to do he wasn't just resting on his laurels he right. wasn't just fine with who he was and was not trying to make any progress. And then Moash was like death before life. Right. Yeah. Destination before journey. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think there's also the matter of Moash's motivations being so different from Adolin's because mm. Moash, even though initially he was angry at Elokar for, um, the death of his grandparents, I believe it was correct. Um, yeah, he, he had like legitimate reasons to be angry, but by the time he actually kills the man, he's really just in this whole arc of embracing nihilism and mm -hmm. uh, trying to trying to make all of his nasty emotions go away into this void in his head um, and allowing Odium to take his pain and all of this. So he's he's like in a totally different headspace than Adolin is in. He's not he's not even really sort of looking for revenge. He's just he's killing for the sake of killing. Um, even if the person he chose to kill was a person he had sort of vowed to kill a long time ago. That's well, no, and I, I think that, I think that makes it significantly different. It does. And, and I think you have a good point there insofar as like the fact is Moash has even abandoned revenge. Like this isn't really even about revenge anymore. His killing of Alucard. Yeah. I mean, I think there's still an, an, an echo of that, but it almost seems like he's just following through with it because it's something he planned to do. It's kind of like the sunk cost fallacy. Right. Like he he had already planned to kill Alucard. He was just following through because that's what he had planned to do. I don't think he was even really thinking about whether or not it was a goal he still wanted to pursue. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, I think. And now it's time for a joke. What okay. do what do Odium and Ruin have in common? They both want Moash. Okay. Uh. <laughs> it was uh it was the well, I don't know if we can do Mistboard spoilers, but it wasn't Ruin who put the ash on Scadriel. Mm. 
you know. He was the one that caused, however, the ash mounts to erupt at the end. Oh, was he? Yeah, that was Ruin oh. trying to destroy the like like the the initial eruption of the ash mounts. No, but when they all started erupting together and like blanketing the entire world in ash. Oh, that's right. That was Ruin. That's right. Okay, good. Okay. My joke was saved. Okay. <laughs> been working on. I mean, I, I've had that. I, I think I told it to Griff a while ago, but I've had that in my back <laughs> pocket because I don't think I've said it on the podcast, and now it's out there. And it was a great joke. It was thank a great you. Joke. It, it works. It works. You're good. Cool. Cool. All right. Uh, speaking of redemption arcs, Zeth. What's going on there? Is he You're a cinnamon roll? What? Too good for this world. Zeth is a cinnamon <laughs> roll. <laughs> Not really, but I think I think he he is working with a certain naivete. About Skybreakers? No, not about Skybreakers. I mean, well, and I think we get less of it in Oathbringer, but when we see him at the beginning of Way of Kings, okay, like the fact that he's he feels honor bound to obey whoever has the orb. If and he is a cinnamon roll, does that mean that he has to obey the oath scone? Yes. <laughs> uh, that was good. <laughs> thank you. But I think I think one of the things is that well, and. Was it was it Words of Radiance or was it Way of Kings at the end where he's proven correct because the the radiant the night radiance are back? I think it's in Words of Radiance. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because yeah, I think he, he finds out like halfway through when he fights when he fights Kaladin. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, at, yeah. The, at the at the the yeah. very end, he starts the... shouting, "I'm truthless" or something like that. Right. And so I think I think that was honestly kind of an awakening for him because up until that point, he had thought he was a liar. He thought he was. Oh, I don't think he ever even thought he was a liar, but he accepted his people's judgment of him. And I think it's Oathbringer where he finally kind of unshackles himself from that or begins to at the very least. Well, I mean his spirit was unshackled from his body. Well, well so, yes. <laughs> and the nail was like, here's a sword. And Nightblood being in, in Roshar was interesting. It was. Cause, <laughs> cause we've seen, uh, cameos before then. Right. But Nightblood was this very like staple thing suddenly becoming a main player in the plot. And I thought that was a little fascinating. I think that's a large part of why Zeth's chapters in this book are so entertaining. The dynamic between him, Nightblood, and later Lyft is just like it's the the perfect contrast of personalities. It's wonderful. Completely <laughs> agree. It oh wait, no, I guess we're not doing more Mistborn spoilers. Anyways, no, they uh, they really they do have good chemistry, and I'm glad Sanderson chose that. Uh, about Nightblood on Roshar, I found it really interesting that at some at at the point that Dalinar went to cultivation, cultivation offered him Nightblood. Yes, it mentioned, and it was just in passing, but that just adds to the mystery of Nightblood. And 
a callback to Nathaniel's great video about Sanderson fans. Um, Nightblood is the crux of every question. And if yeah, Nightblood is just everywhere. Night, if you Everyone have Nightblood. If you managed to get a Bondsmith on, what was it? Uh, your video was so funny. Anyways. Uh, I can't remember it either. I don't know. <laughs> I just remember something with Nightblood. Yeah. Oh, man. God. And then you, you managed to just copy Sanderson's phrasing so well. Tangent number two. We're back. Um, okay. Where are we going with that? Yeah, so Nightblood. There's a mystery there that needs to be solved. We need two novellas, Night and Blood. Okay, Sanderson, this is the game plan. When you release Elantris 2 and Elantris 3, what you're going to actually do is a Kickstarter. And part of that Kickstarter is going to be, the first one It's going to be the novella Night. And the second Kickstarter for Elantris 3 is going to be is going to be Blood. All right. Is this, just to clarify, is this different from the Warbreaker sequel, also called Nightblood? Uh, this is taking that sequel and go ahead, go ahead and splitting it into two, oh. so that we get how Nightblood got to Roshar, and then all of Nightblood's journeys on Roshar, and it would be a great April Fool's joke if he did it all from the perspective of Nightblood. So it would just be... <laughs> that would be exhausting to read. <laughs> yeah. You want to destroy evil today. Just be like one, one massive stream of consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> and then I destroyed some evil. It was great. And then I got full. And then I got empty again. And then I talked with somebody. And they told me to stop. <sighs> you like reading a James Joyce book or something. <laughs> I do find Nightblood's mindset very interesting. Like, I wouldn't want to read a whole book like that. Because, yes, I think that'd be exhausting. But... The fact that I mean, we know we know the problem is that he was designed to destroy evil without knowing what evil is. Right. And so he just kind of destroys everything and I guess assumes that evil will be in there eventually. Is, so. is Sanderson commenting on the fact that there is evil inside of everything? I think no. I think he's more commenting. Com <laughs> if, you, if you don't mind me saying so, I think he is more commenting on the overzealous or on the the blindness that eventually comes from zealotry. I yeah, think he's commenting on the dangers of misaligned artificial intelligence and how giving a artificial intelligence motives can lead to it having motives different from what you planned. There it is. So, so you heard it here first, <laughs> folks. Uh, no swords in the hands of AI. Yeah, <laughs> in the hands of zealous AI. Yes, exactly. There you go. Oh, but man. I mean, I, and I think you could read it in multiple ways. I see it as kind of a commentary on zealotry. I mean, it's probably. Yeah. To be fair, for Sanderson, is probably a commentary on, like, everything. That's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, knowing Sanderson. Yeah. Although the fact that he's paired with Zeth, I think, is does kind of support the fact that it's a, a commentary on zealotry. Because before he is proved truthful, when he is still tr considering himself truthless, he is a zealot. It's in a somewhat calm, compliant way, but he is so absolutely bound to the idea of this honor stone without it having any kind of supernatural hold this is simply based upon his will and and what he chooses to do um i think that you know 
he was paired with Nightblood because of that. Right. Because of the I fact think, that yeah, he recently. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that he recently came out of being a zealot. And so I, I and I don't know if Nail really necessarily intended this, but I think narratively, at least he is intended to be kind of a counterpoint to Nightblood because Nightblood is kind of bound to its nature. I don't think it necessarily can change, though. We may see that being disproven in the future, but. With enough breaths, it can become what's the opposite of blood? Bile. Ooh. Wait, what's the four humors? It's blood bile phlegm well, there's, there's and... two there's two kinds of bile there's like yellow bile and black bile right yeah which one's which one's or... the opposite of blood in the four humors i have no idea <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna type into google opposite of blood oh well i'm looking up a chart of the four humors now and it looks like the one on the opposite side is black bile yeah okay so so the sword so with enough breaths the sword can become day black bile it really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, you know that that's just the smooth, smooth as butter. There, smooth as bile, <laughs> which is not very smooth. Okay, no, not, not particularly. <laughs> well, I guess if it's black, it's got something in it that might make it smoother. Let's not uh, continue <laughs> that. Although, if he was day black bile, would he still be a black sword? Absolutely. So it wouldn't you visually, it wouldn't change. <laughs> exactly. It would just be the name. Would you like to create some evil today? <laughs> evil nightblood be like. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. I hope. I hope one day. Maybe on one of his plane flights to Hawaii for his vacation, Sanderson listens to this episode. <laughs> He's like, these guys are onto something. And it'll be after the Stormlight series. Of course. After yes. Stormlight 10 comes out, he'll listen to this and he'll be like, that's how I should have done it. That would have saved everything. <laughs> Day Black Bile. He'll just, he'll write another, an extra novel called, there we go. or an, an extra series of novellas called Day and Black Bile. There you go. Yes, uh, there you there go. There Perfect. You go. Yep. And then continue the story from there. And it'll, it'll actually be what if scenarios like Marvel does. Yes. Yes. Right? It'll just be a series. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That, that implies the presence of a Cosmere multiverse. And I'm not sure how much I like that idea. I really don't like Ooh, that idea. No, <laughs> no, actually no. I'm good with the three realms. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's just, <laughs> let, let's stick with, Oh, actually, Oh, damn it. That's a tangent that I don't really want to get onto. But what if we go the Adventure Time route, which if anybody listening has kept up with Adventure Time, they did do a 10 episode Fiona and Cake on HBO Max. And it's wonderful. And it's a little bit of an extension to Adventure Time. Um, what if they what if instead of a multiverse, it's just a story inside Hoyt's head? What if it's what ifs inside mm -hmm. Hoyt's head? All right. I mean, I'm not that would kind of work. Yeah, no, like, that, would, could... that would kind of. I can see it working. Yeah. All right. Well, that. Narrated by Hoyd. Narrated by Hoyd. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Especially by. Wait, Nathaniel, have you read Tress yet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Especially narrated by Stupid Hoyd. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things that was interesting was that I was seeing a. Uh, a, a recently, I, I listened to a. Um, 
Review of the Apocryphon of John. Okay. Which is a Gnostic text. It's okay. Specifically, Sethian Gnosticism. We are so far from Oathbringer I know. now. No, no, no. I'm not sure we're there's, getting there's back. A, there's, a, okay. there, there's a connection here. Okay. No, but one of the things that I found interesting, and I don't know if this inspired Sanderson at all. Okay. But I found an interesting comparison of the spiritual realm, the cognitive realm, and the material realm to Gnosticism's idea of the true heaven with with the the monad the the one true god the mm. false heaven that the demiurge like uh inhabits which is still a non-material realm but is not the true spiritual realm of the monad in gnosticism and then the material realm which is earth which is you know where all bodies and evil and everything inhabits and I, it was just kind of this interesting parallel of the spiritual, cognitive, and material realm, and then the three realms in Gnosticism. And I don't know if he was inspired by that at all, but I found an interesting parallel there. It's also pretty similar to Kabbalah, which I was doing some reading about recently. Like, there's, I think there's also like these three uh, realms. But I, if I recall correctly, didn't Sanderson say he was mostly inspired by Plato's theory of the forms? Well, and that would make, like the cognitive realm. That would make sense or, then, because the Gnosticism was actually a pairing of Platonic ideals with oh. Christian mythology. Like that was it. Nicene Christianity was the one that eventually ran out, which or won out, which is the kind of Christianity you see nowadays. But Gnosticism mm. was actually a kind of uh, contemporary rival to Nicene Christianity, which paired the platonic ideals of the forms and things like that with Christianity and it's the mythology around the Christ figure. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I didn't realize it was as old as the Nicene Creed. Oh yeah. The, the I, thought, I thought it was way later. Okay. No, 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 no. It was, it was contemporary. As I said, Nicene Christianity eventually beat it out, but no, they were contemporaries for a long time. Uh, well, I shouldn't say Nicene Christianity. That's what it became. It was Apostolic Christianity versus Gnostic Christianity. So okay, yeah. So this one time in college, <laughs> uh, I was in philosophy and anatomy and physiology, and on this one day in this semester, I had an exam, and for the philosophy exam, uh, it was discussing monads. And for the anatomy and physiology exam, we were discussing gonads. And so I posted this on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Monads and gonads. Very nice. And that's the intellectual contribution I have to that tangent. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like there's a really sophisticated joke in there somewhere. Um, um, it's not sophisticated I, I at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like you could. I feel like you could do something with that. I feel like you could make something clever out of that. Um, I don't know where to go though. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, maybe by the end of the episode, we'll figure it out. Uh, man, plagiarize reality. Now you're gonna have to say monads and gonads before destination. I am. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll see. <laughs> Maybe that'll be one of our sponsors, Monads and Gonads. Oh my God! <laughs> Getting it from both is it, ends. Is it? A, is it a Gnostic fertility clinic? <laughs> there we go. You found it. Oh man. 
I mean, man. Nobody, nobody steal that company name idea. That's a, that's a great <laughs> idea. I think it really has some legs. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know how to get back. <laughs> I don't know how to get back to Oathbringer. <laughs> do we just do we just change keys and just okay? Well, I mean, okay. So to to branch off of my initial point and not anything to do with gonads. Um, oh yeah, blame I, it on me. Uh huh. I think okay. So so here's an interesting thing, and, and maybe I'm getting a little bit off in the weeds here on the philosophy section. So you're visiting cultivation. Yes. But actually, there's an interesting parallel you could draw between the fact that we have the three forms and the fact that Sanderson was inspired by platonic ideals of the forms and things like that to Dalinar's ability to call upon honor's perpendicularity, which actually merges the three and the entire point of Christ in Gnostic Christianity, in which he is supposed to bring the gnosis that frees us from the shackles of the material plane and brings us back in line into the true heaven, into the spiritual realm with all the Gnostic deities, because Gnosticism is absolutely not a monotheistic religion whatsoever. But So if we extrapolate from there, all of the shards bringing it could maybe at some point the shards um, would be the archons oh, okay uh the archons are divine things that came from the monad that represented certain uh um concepts effectively actually it was the fact that sophia wisdom uh wanted to uh view herself which created the demiurge hmm. because she did a an act by herself without the sanction of the monad and because of that the demiurge was created which we don't actually see a parallel in the cosmere of really Yet. although mm, well no because because um what happened with uh um Adelnasium? no uh owner the two Cells, cells, shards. devotion and dominion. Thank you, You're devotion welcome. and dominion. That was due to odium. That wasn't their own folly. Okay, well, them being moved into the cognitive realm. I mean, sure, that was done by odium. That was not their own <laughs> actions that caused their energy to be. What about virtuosity? Virtuosity was was that. You mean the nightmare painter? Well, did virtuosity actually? What point are you making on that front? Oh, I was just kind of tying into. Uh, you said devotion and dominion didn't off themselves, but virtuosity did. Oh, she self-splintered, but she didn't right. put herself into the cognitive front. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to say there are direct parallels, but I will say that there is an interesting parallel you could draw between the goal of Christ in Gnostic Christianity and Dalinar's ability to access honor's perpendicularity, because the perpendicularity merges all three, which is weird because I don't think we actually see that with any of the other perpendicularities, even the stable ones. They go from the material realm into the cognitive realm, but they don't merge the three realms together. 
Well, in Mistborn, we have a couple of moments where characters see the spiritual realm, but I don't. That wasn't at the perpendicularities. No, that was that was um, Kelsier seeing it after he punched uh, preservation. Preservation. Yeah, there is. And and he he literally asks preservation. He he tells preservation like, "Show me that again." Hmm. So, I find it interesting that honor's perpendicularity seems to be different than. The other perpendicularities we encounter. It could be Dalinar's commitment to unite them and. No, you're not wrong. There is something to be said for that. Sure. And it could just be the, the sheer coolness factor of. That know, is absolutely. Taking one, yeah. taking one realm in one hand, taking one realm in the other hand and bringing the two hands together. Yeah, no, you're not wrong there. Three there, realms into one. There is, there is a thing to be said for the rule of cool with Sanderson's writing. Nine so. tenths of everything in his books. Yeah. For, no, <laughs> there's a lot of planning. Oh, it's such a great moment. The unity yeah, no. chapter. The mm. I will say, okay, so getting on the Sanderland, which I feel like we can probably move into. Sure. Um, we could have done that from the beginning. That's fair. <laughs> I don't know how far off of the outline we are at this point. We were talking about Gnosticism, Griff. <laughs> the outline <laughs> okay, doesn't exist fair. anymore. <laughs> no, but the the Battle of Thalen Field yes. was, I mean, that was just a... Wait, before we get there... Okay. I need to talk about promises, progress, and payoff Sorry, one more time. Sorry, yes. Okay. You know, okay. one more time. Right. And one right. that I haven't brought up. Sanderson has stated during the beta reading, bear with me, when after the fall of uh, Alethkar, after the fall of Kolinar, sorry, right. after the fall of Kolinar, when Adolin and Kaladin and Shallan go to the cognitive realm. Right. Originally... <laughs> Sanderson had them had the promise that they would make it to uh, the I want to say they were going to go to cultivation's perpendicularity, right? Which is what Azure wanted to do. Right. Yes. And then for no reason, for very, very poorly supported reasons, they instead went down to where they ended up. For the Battle of Thalen Field. Right. So he had a promise that he did not pay off. And the beta readers hated it. So he had to add the bit where Kaladin goes to the lighthouse and has the prophecy, sees the vision of them needing to be at that place, very different from cultivation's oh, perpendicularity. Okay. And from that, he changed that initial promise to a different promise. Right. Had progress to it and then paid it off and it was good. Yeah, no, I, I get that though. Because if you set up a pattern like that, mm-hmm. people will, will subconsciously pick up on it. Right. Even if they're not consciously aware of the fact that you're setting up this pattern. And this has actually been proven in a whole bunch of studies that your subconscious will pick up on patterns before your conscious brain does. Um, they had this interesting uh, experiment studied uh, a while back and I cannot cite who or what or whatever but they had two decks of cards some with rewards and some with punishments on them and they had one deck just slightly stacked more rewards than um, punishments and the other one was slightly stacked more punishments than rewards and they actually saw that subconsciously the brain started responding 
more favorably to the deck with the more rewards before the person consciously caught on to the fact that that's that there was a deck with more rewards than punishments in it. Wow. Yeah. So. But no, that actually makes sense. It makes sense that, that it would have read very wrong to the beta readers when I'm I'm sure he uses probably the same or similar groups for each of his books. Yes. Yeah. So the fact that they would have already picked up on this promise, progress, payoff pattern that he has set in all of his books that the the Thalen field before he set the the lighthouse and the prophecy in that it would have read poorly to them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny that you can just do such small hacks like that in order to get people to enjoy the story more. It right. almost feels like cheating, but if it works, it works. I get. I guess this is part of the reason why prophecies are are uh, a staple of fantasy because it it allows you to have some sense of progress even when you're not necessarily making much progress towards your what your goals are. They really can. Yeah, I agree. Or if uh, a lot of urban fantasy will have a prologue that starts in the future and then they'll jump back to oh in media res yeah 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 so that you do have that, that it can get that that particular go ahead i was just gonna say that particular trope kind of annoys me same but maybe it's just me no it's, it's not, not it's just not my, you. it's not my favorite way to start a book it's not my favorite way to start a book either now i will say brief tangent with what ninth house and hellbent are doing where it it feels like it's a prologue that starts out in the future and then jumps back what what that author does lee bardugo actually does is that she keeps a parallel story going yes. in future and past so mm-hmm. it actually it doesn't oh that's cool it, yeah no it actually works out really well yeah so. no lee bardugo is she has a almost poetic way of writing that I think really allows her to carry something like that in media res that does not necessarily work for other writers nearly mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is an so interesting. It's not just your, Go ahead. Oh, it's not just your typical, you know, uh, record scratch freeze frame. You're probably wondering how I ended up in this situation. Oh yeah, no, definitely That's not. correct. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's <laughs> cool. so far from that. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, while it may be a tangent, um, Ninth House and Hellbend are both phenomenal books, and I highly recommend anybody who is a fan of urban fantasy of any stripe should read them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, it's it's just, it's absolutely fantastic. I think that's tangent five. Yes, probably. That I took us on. But no, I, I think that, yeah, in media res is not my favorite way of doing it. Prophecies, I'm actually not a huge fan of either, unless they're the kind of prophecies that end up coming true because the person is trying to uh, very actively move away from the prophecy. Those are entertaining. Yes. The the, the dramatic irony in, in Greek myths of, of trying to stop the prophecy and therefore being the tool that brings them to fruition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also love when uh, characters are able to like change the prophecy by literally changing the fabric of reality um, by like altering their own fate. Uh, I, I feel like there's some examples I can think of of that sort of thing happening. But does that happen a lot? I don't know. I know. I I don't know. I hmm. 
There, well, I feel I like there was some example on the top of my head, but I, I wasn't able to think of it. Doesn't God of War do that? I'm not sure. I haven't played it. The um, maybe. Because yes. I thought the latest God of War was all about like fate and prophecy and destiny. Oh, and, it definitely like, is. Fighting your fate and oh, all yeah. of that. You know so, what? Yeah, that's true. And yeah. Well, so is Yumi and the Nightmare Painter, sort of. Oh, yeah. Actually, you know, oh, one example of this sort of thing go. is in Dune. In Dune, actually. Oh, um, I should have said it. In Dune. In Dune, you have all these sorts of things that are like prophecies, like Paul has these visions of potential mm-hmm. futures, but they're only potential futures. And so he has like, he sees all these like splitting pathways of ways sure. things could go. And his actions are able to literally change the future and uh, alter the prophecies. Like the most clear example of this in the movie is he keeps having this vision of being stabbed by spoilers for uh, the Dune movie. He keeps having this, vi- or is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. So he keeps having this vision of being stabbed by Jameis. And Mm -hmm. uh, when we actually get to that part of the movie, he's the one who stabs Jameis instead. Uh, And he also has these visions of being like trains in the ways of the Fremen by Jameis. Jameis. But those visions never come true because he ends up stabbing him. And so he, we get the sense that like the prophecies are kind of alterable in this world, um, which is pretty interesting. I completely agree with that. And the Dune movie is fantastic. And it's amazing. And I can't wait yeah. for number two to come out. Uh, Renarin is actually experiencing some prophecy stuff in Oathbringer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was uh, actually, I, I do like the parallel that Sanderson brings up between Taravangians, like the, the difference between Taravangians diagram. Mm-hmm. Is that what they call it? The diagram? The, the diagram. Yeah. And then you have, um, Odium show his diagram, which is like Taravangians, except a hundred points further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I find that's interesting versus because because both of them are just possibilities. It's just working off a of probability because what we see and actually one of the things that I like about Sanderson with his uh, with the shards abilities to, to see into the future is that it's all just potentialities. Nothing is ever set, set in stone. And we see that because um, Renarin and his ability to see the future and that future being changed makes him a little dead zone in in uh, Odium's super diagram, I guess. Hmm. And so we, we see that their ability to see the future is not perfect. Mm-hmm. And so even though Odium has this grand, beautiful super diagram that's so much, you know, more complex and so much for, so f- far further in the future than Taravangians, we see that neither of them actually work out the way. And we see that with with um, Dalinar, like, mm-hmm. you know, Dalinar does not respond the way that the diagram says he should. And so therefore the plan starts to break down. Yeah. Which I wonder if that speaks to actually as a foreshadow for how the uh, book series is going to go now that. Well, that was definitely spoilers for Rhythm of War. <laughs> That's OK. If they if people have read Oathbringer, 
They've probably read Rhythm of War. Probably, yeah. But we're still going to cut it because somebody may be on the cusp of reading Rhythm of War. That's and they're fair. like, I want to go listen to people talk about how much I loved Oathbringer with me. <laughs> That's what I would do. However, back onto the Battle of Thalen Field. Yes. Um, We've arrived. Yes, we have arrived. I think that honestly, it is probably one of the best just like it, it is just Sanderson showing off all mm-hmm. of the abilities of the Knights Radiant. Because you have Shallan with her, you know, uh, illusion army that mm-hmm. actually has some substance to them, which is why they're at all uh, satisfying for the people under. Um, oh, what's that red mist being? The thrill. The thrill. That's under the thrill's thrall. That's ooh, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> the thrill's thrall coming yeah. soon to an army near you. But, um, I mean, we have that. We have Yasna showing off the transformation abilities and her ability to look into the uh, the cognitive realm. We have a resolution on the Shallan, Adolin, Kaladin love triangle. God, I <laughs> wish that had not been. It, it was Okay, let me say this. It was handled better than the... Um, Mistborn spoilers Ellen, you're about to say. Yeah, the 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 book two of the Mistborn trilogy. Still not great. No. I mean, admittedly, it wasn't actually Shallan. True. It was Vale. That's right. That was attracted to Kaladin and then Shallan, who was actually attracted to Adolin, so does that make it does that make it better or does that make it just like even more knowing, and overly convoluted? Knowing a couple of people that actually have um DID, um your alters can have relationships that are separate from you, and that can be a completely valid and consensual thing. So Veil being attracted if if I'm not saying Sanderson should have gone this way with it, but if he had decided to have Vale date Kaladin and Shallan date Adolin, consensually, ethically, that would have been fine. He would have been plagiarizing reality. Yes. Is what you're saying. Yes. Um, that, that would have been plagiarizing reality. So, eh. I mean, it, you yeah. know, it would depend on how Adolin and Kaladin felt about the whole situation, too. So... I think he said that Adolin would be fine with that. It's just Kaladin who would have a problem with it, from what I under, from what I understand. That's fair. Honestly, I, I'm still of the opinion, and I know this is a hot take, um, I'm still of the opinion that this whole thing isn't necessarily over and that there's a, a chance uh, for them, for all three of them. That's uh, a spicy. That's a other. spicy hot take. I mean, it, it is. It, it is. would be interesting if, if Sanderson decided to set up a poly relationship because I think it'd be the, the thing first is, one in like mainstream media that's been represented well. I, though there may be a few shows that did it. I'm not caught up on all of that. I was going to say Futurama tried, but that was well. There's there's one at the center of uh, the Wheel of Time, like a oh okay, a fair enough relationship I, sort of main series. I tried getting into Wheel um, of Time. I I really could not, but. But anyway, what I was saying is, um, I, I this is a, a really really hot take, but I I really like the dynamics between Kaladin and Shallan a lot mm. more 
than that between Shalana and Adolin. Really? And part of the reason for that is it's just the two of them are so much more entertaining with each other. Mm. And I, I, I loved the scene with them in the chasms in Words of Radiance. Um, I love, yeah. I love the constant dynamic between the two of them. Like they never, they're never quiet around each other. They always have something to say. Um, there's, there's always some like tension there. Um, and maybe, maybe this is extremely immature of me, but I really like, it, it, when I'm reading a book, I really like relationships that are interesting as opposed to relationships that work. Oh, I so, see. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not actually entirely un, un, or unusual because if you think about it, if you look at most situations in romance books, they're incredibly unhealthy. Uh, as one yeah, person, as one person said that I absolutely loved, it's uh, the um, the Venn diagram between uh, good drama and healthy behavior has an incredibly slim overlap that almost exclusively contains <laughs> hugging and making apologies. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, I so uh, I'll take I'll take the opposite stance of that. And I think in a series like the Stormlight Archive, where there's so much happening, I am more than content. I am happy that there are these relationships that are kind of just more solid and and you see them figuring each other out and understanding each other. And it's not overly dramatic or melodramatic or unhealthy and it and it is a, a a place of positivity for the characters especially when there's so much other crap going on around them so that's my really um so i was watching a video earlier today where this guy was rating some philosophical hot takes um and he decided that the opposite of spicy was minty <laughs> so that's my was really that, was that was that cosmic skeptic oh it sure was yeah yeah, yeah that was great i watched that video yeah um yep it was that video uh i imagine i just peaked i'm gonna have okay. to anyways uh so <laughs> that was my super minty take sorry that just reminds yeah. me well, of I, I do imagine oh no no I, go, I on, go say, on do, with regards to what you were saying i do imagine that rhythm of war would be like five or six hundred pages longer if Kaladin and Shalon had actually ended up together just because of all that drama. So yeah, your, your take is not bad by any means. It's relative. Thank you. But it's just I personally wouldn't have minded the drama. I, sure. I don't mind five, 500 pages of Kaladin and Shalon just arguing. <laughs> that said, that said, I think you can also get that relationship without them being romantically entangled. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. They they That's are true. still snipey. They, they they don't they don't really interact right. much in rhythm you, you of do war. Lose... Although, yeah, yeah. That's Sorry. not too much of a spoiler, I hope. But they they spend most of the book like apart from each other. So. You, your thing about minty and spicy being opposites of each other reminds me of a Tumblr post I saw where somebody was saying that if if spicy makes your tongue feel things hot, and minty makes your tongue feel things cold, then if you do them both together they should cancel each other out and then he immediately follows that post a couple of hours later saying hey guess what hellfire tastes like <laughs> <laughs> they are they are indeed um separate binding spots yep yep <laughs> so you two both at once you are <laughs> you yep. you are just activating both i guess it is really the opposite of spicy 
in, in that sense. Yes, but uh, okay. you can still have both. Also, somebody was talking about how they tasted carbonated milk. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you carbonate milk? Uh, I, I believe it was something about Pop Rocks and cereal initially and like the, the fizz. From, but the fact is, is that what happens when you carbonate milk is that you make a very good forgery of spoiled milk because <laughs> <You do>. it's, <laughs> it's acidic and it curdles. Exactly. But it's still safe to drink. So it's not actually spoiled, but it tastes exactly like spoiled milk. And <laughs> a heads up, this is exactly what happens when you mix Coke and Bailey's. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it tastes gross. Um, <laughs> Good to know. But, but it's also uh, for people who use plant-based milks like I do. Uh, when you're baking, you curdle the plant-based milk to create uh, a more milk substitute or a, a, a binding agent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Right? All right. Makes good biscuits. Anyway, back onto Thalen Field. Which is what we were initially talking about. One of the little threads yeah. I like that Sanderson has has woven through the tapestry that is the Stormlight Archive is Risen. And yes, yeah, no, Risen is one of my favorite characters. And I like how he incorporates her right before the this battle. Or really, I get. Is it in the interlude? Is it in the battle? Are you talking about the gem that it's, she it's gets? It's in the interlude. The, just yeah, before. it's one of the yeah. interludes. Yeah, with the with the perfect gem that mm -hmm. that can that can, never leaks that yeah. that can retain it perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I did not think that that was where that gem was going to go. Really? Initially, yeah, that is not where I foresaw that being used. Where did you foresee it being used? I thought it was going to end up being a long con something about a perfect vessel for Stormlight and a way they were going to retain their story without it being degraded. Oh. Yeah, but... Like Renarin's vision, you were wrong. Yeah, I was. And I also didn't necessarily <laughs> think about the fact that, like... I, I mean, I knew that Spren could be stored in gemstones because, of yes. course, that's how, like, the ruby... Um, Flame oh. spread and the no, Fabrioles. No, no, no. Fabri thank you, Fabrioles. That You're was welcome. what I was looking for. That's how the Fabrioles work and everything. But I think it was maybe because of something early. Is that the. Yeah, that's when they discovered the Stormlight Archives. That's, yes. that's the book where they discovered the Stormlight Archives. So my brain was still on Stormlight mm. being stored in gemstone, not Spren being stored in gemstone. Sure. So that was. Yeah, that was the only reason that was on my mind and why I foresaw the ruby being used for something other than storing the uh, the thrill in. Sure. So I don't remember the name of the actual spren that brings the thrill. Yeah, I always get it mixed up with um, the one that gives you visions. Is it... Which one's Nergal? Oh. Yeah, there's Nargarl and there's Moloch. I, I think, think it's Moloch. Like Moloch? Is it Moloch? Um, Wait, I'm, I'm gonna look it up. So <laughs> am to... I. Which one of us can do it faster? Uh, it's... Nergaul. Oh, is it Nergaul? Well, that's what, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's Nergaul. Oh, Moloch is, Moloch is the death rattles. Is the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, as I was saying, I always get those two mixed up. I think... Every time I say or hear Nergaul, I think of Lord of the Rings. Oh, the Nazgul. Um, 
I guess that would be why I think of it, but actually from the movies, I imagine when Sam and Frodo are going up the stairs near um, Cirrus Ungol, Cirrus Ungol, yeah. Um, that is what I think of when I hear, I guess the Ungol, the Nirgawul. Yeah, no, there's, so there's mm. a funny thing about the stairs. Oh, God. That lead up to, um, what's her name? Shelock. Shelock. So apparently the, the language that those stairs are written in are actually ones that both Frodo and, um. Sam? No, not Sam. Um. Gollum? No. Bilbo. Not Aragorn. Who is the other? Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf, the Boromir? human who dies. Boromir. 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 Yes, where they're talking about the stairs that lead up to it, and both Boromir and Frodo speak the name, speak the language that the name of the the stairs were originally written in. So literally, Boromir is saying, or or Frodo is saying. Was it Boromir? It might have been somebody else, but it's like, what's at the top of the spider stairs? We don't know, Frodo. We just don't know. <laughs> Wait, the, the the name of the stairs means spider? Yeah, it literally means like the spider stairs or like the walk of the spider or something. Like, what else Here do you think is going that? to be? Really? Is that... Now this is just reminding me of... And get ready for another plug... Uh, generic entertainment's recent video about the types of Lord of the Rings fans, which I cackled at earlier today. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> wait, 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 what about that video? Just the fact that it's Lord of the Rings? Or? Um, just the uh, the kind of in-depth. Uh, I think the second... Oh, um, yeah, 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 the linguist one. Yeah, that was... I. Okay, it I wasn't laughed. Boromir, it was, was Faramir. Oh, Okay. Yeah, it says, oh, one of my favorite okay. LOTR facts is that Gondorian speaks Sindarin as a first language, and yet when Faramir was talking to Frodo and Sam about Sirith Ungol, he was like, we don't know what's in there. Like, Faramir, Sirith Ungol is Sindarin for Pass of the Spider. Do the math. <laughs> I did not know that. That's interesting. That's amazing. And, and somebody else posted, uh, it's, a, it's a really long thread, so I'm not going to read the entire thing, but it's like, Thank don't you. forget that Frodo also speaks Sindarin, which makes this even worse. Faramir, hey, don't go up the spider stairs. Frodo, why? What's up the spider stairs? <laughs> well, to be fair, if there was like a real, if there was a real place in the world called like uh, the Cleft of the Spider or the Spider Tower, I wouldn't expect there to be an actual massive man-eating spider at the top of well, this passageway. Yes, but I know, we're I know the... it's I know it's Middle Earth. I know it's Middle Earth, but still, Frodo I, did Frodo even know that there like these massive spiders existed? Like uh, he, he obviously have we from, have all from, sorts of from the Hobbit from oh, Bilbo's tales. Bilbo told him, yeah, but those were those were different. They were smaller spiders. Uh, but they were still bigger. They lived in like a. To they lived in a totally different part of the world. Right, but it's, I don't know. It, I just like. Yeah, I like, okay. That that is a good reason yeah. I guess, to expect. Hey, don't go up the spider stairs. Why? What's up the spider stairs? We don't know, Frodo. We just don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh. So like, and and don't get me wrong. Like, yes, in the real world we wouldn't expect that. I. No, but in the real world, we have hazard signs and don't g enter signs and people still go in. This is true. The, uh, God, yeah, God, don't Wrong get way me signs. started on that. 
the amount of people that have walked behind my truck when it is beeping and literally reversing. <laughs> Too high. I just I. Mm. All right. Um, Sorry. Let's work, move on. Complaints. I think we can probably move on to themes. Uh, I have listed here several. Uh, some of them being. Actually, they're all several words each because that's what outlines are nowadays okay nathaniel you want to take a stab at any of these yeah let's see um betrayal and redemption we touched on with um, moash and elokar yeah i think a, a lot of the characters there's still a lot of character arcs we haven't necessarily touched on that's so true far. um I'm trying to think, like, Kaladin's arc in this book, in a ways, there are some ways in which it's pretty similar to his arc in the first book, in that, uh, especially in the Kolinar plotline, you have uh, him going up to this group of people, joining this group of people, and um, doing something very similar to what he did with Bridge 4, and trying to, like, build them up, right. and allow them to survive this invasion. Although, in this, in this case, he mostly fails i guess since the invasion succeeded although sure. not completely uh, yeah. well no i i guess a lot of the people did die didn't they yeah a lot of the a lot of the wall guards so yeah i guess he did sort of fail and yeah kaladin he has a lot of failures in this book because he also he fails to speak the fourth ideal he's not he ready for that yet yeah i feel like a lot of kaladin's arc in this book is sort of setting him up for rhythm of war and his like ultimate sorts of moments of despair that happened in those book in that book. It certainly is. We also see him with the Parshendi near the beginning of the book. And yeah. he gets a, a deep sense of how I get relatable. I don't know if relatable is the right word, but yeah, I know what you're meaning. Yeah. That the Parshendi I, I, I aren't just, the way yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's the the whole thing of the fact that, like, it's been pretty well proven in war that you have to kind of demonize your enemy if you're going to be able to kill them. Because if you humanize them, then it makes it that much more difficult to do. I'm going to put necessary in massive quotation marks here, but do what's necessary to win the war. Like, well, Syl thinks it's necessary, so you don't need to put the quotes. Right. But Syl's fine with it. Okay, that's just going off of what's in the Stormlight Archive. I'm just saying. Right. All I'm saying is the fact that, like, it's not surprising that Kaladin did not necessarily think of them as just people living normal lives, because if we're going to kill them, especially in personal combat like that, I think you kind of have to demonize them a little bit mm -hmm. to at least be able to and make. Oh. Sorry, uh -huh. go on. I, I didn't. I, I did. That was that was the entirety of my thought. Okay, well, I, I was just going to say this is this is actually one of my favorite things about Oathbringer because I see some people s point this out as a weakness of the book, that the main villains in the book are a bunch of farmers who don't really know how to fight um, and are basically just normal people who had their memories wiped for most of their life and mm -hmm. don't really know what's going on, aren't particularly intimidating. But I think this is one of the biggest strengths of the book because they're not just orc substitutes. Mm -hmm. They're not... Um, they're not these this mindless army of minions. They actually 
they're really just regular people. And the fact that we spend so much time with them in this book, getting to know them and seeing them for who they are, really makes this whole war a lot more morally gray. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I completely agree. I don't I don't think that's a weakness of the book at all. I think that he is Sanderson is very much showing the kind of awful truth of war. Like, yeah, most people in war are not people that are, you know, passionate about fighting the war or dying for their country or anything like that. They're literally doing this thing because this is either what they signed up for or what they were conscripted for. And they really don't want to be there any more than the other side really wants to be there. They're yeah, and in the case... Oh. No, no, go on. In the case of the singers, it's almost like they don't really have much of a choice because they spent their whole lives being enslaved by humans. And now when they finally are unenslaved, they have this... They have the chance to go to war against essentially the entire human race. So can you really blame them for wanting to do that, for wanting to fight back against their oppressors? Like, I don't really think you can. Nope. They have a totally, they, the average singer soldier in this war has a totally valid reason for doing what they do. Even if they're not necessarily aware of Odium and his true intentions, it, it's it's hard to blame them for for supporting him like well and on top of that they don't really have a choice because like what other infrastructure do they have to set themselves under like they were literally a slave race they don't have properties they don't really have homes they don't have jobs they don't have a monetary system they don't have any kind of elected government or not even elected any kind of government set up like they literally have nothing they come out of being these kind of mindless compliant slaves to no kind of infrastructure supporting them. So yeah, of course they're going to get, or, or they're going to follow the one person that says, Hey, I'm like you We're doing this war come with us. Like, I don't feel like they would have the choice to do anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they could run away to the shattered plains. Right. Because that's worked out so well for them. Mm, it did for some of them. And then they literally created the Everstorm there. So like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I guess you're, you got a point. You got a point. I'm just saying, like, I can understand why they joined the war, even if they really don't want to fight, because I don't think they had much of a choice otherwise. Like, yeah, maybe a few, a rare, a rare, you know, minority of them maybe ran off into the woods and decided to subsist off of the land, you know, subsist off the land and, and build a, an independent life for themselves. Honestly, that'd probably be a really interesting little novella to read. I, but, I imagine there probably are quite a few who did that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are. I just don't think that that's the majority of them. I no. think the majority of them, yeah. you know, were, were waking up confused and alone and scared and not knowing anything about the world that they existed in. I don't know how much of their memories from their time as the Parshendi. As the Parshman. Or as the Parshman, you know, I don't know how many of them are, how much of that memory is something they retain. But even actually either way, like they either they either remember their time as a parchment living under the Alethi and following orders and doing nothing else or they don't. Either way, I still think it results in them waking up alone, confused, scared, without direction and having somebody come and say, hey, 
we have support here for you. We have food. We have shelter. We have a plan for what we're doing. Yeah, most of them are going to follow. Yeah. It also sort of raises this interest. I think most of them, most of them wouldn't really have had any combat experience before Mm-mm. waking up um, in the Everstorm. So it raises an interesting question of how they were trained so quickly. Um to fight i i guess maybe a lot of them weren't like a lot of the enemies the characters encounter in oathbringer are the fused but in the battle of thalen field there are a lot of singers in the battle as well and at that point from their perspective they're really only like what a few weeks old they've only they only have like a few weeks of memory in them something like that maybe maybe months i don't know so it's kind of a kind of a messed up situation very Good job, Sanderson, pulling at our heartstrings. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, I mean, well, and that's... Was it ever confirmed in any of the books that that was why the original Night Radiant cast down their swords was because they found out that they were the... Wait, is that Rhythm of War spoilers? No, that they find that in Oathbringer that okay, so it is an Oathbringer, are not an indigenous species. Yeah, okay, I wanted to make sure it was Oathbringer. I wanted to make sure I wasn't popping into rhythm of war spoilers but like i believe it's it's said that that's why the original knights rating cast down their swords was because they found out that they were the void bringers it wasn't the parchendi yeah and so the fact is that like you know i think sanderson does a really really good job of portraying the war as this it's a fighting of two sides but neither one is right like, if it's, of course, the humans can't just give up everything that they've done to Roshar and, like, cut the planet in half or whatever. Like, that's just not logistically, impo- like, yes, it could, it is, po- it is not impossible, but the amount of <laughs> logistical effort it would take to do that would be ridiculous. My, and my also, face was, my face was very disbelieving of what Griff was saying yeah. is why he... And also, you know, they don't want to die, so I understand them fighting. But, like, Sanderson, I think, goes out of his way to show that this is just two sides going to war. This is not a good side fighting a bad side. Yeah. Like, yes, maybe the Parshendi are, you know, teaming up with Odium and all of that, and that's going to eventually turn out to be a disaster. But I can understand why they do it. Go back to Ashen. Get off our planet. Basically. Not in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> um. Ashens in your Roshar? It's more likely than you think. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I think that Oathbringer reveals that a lot of the Stormlight Archive is sort of about colonialism. I mean, yeah. Oh, it absolutely um, is. Because you have... You have uh, the humans finding out that they're not indigenous to Roshar, that they came from somewhere else, and now they're essentially stuck here. Um, they're so deeply integrated into the planets that it, they can't just, like, go back to Ashid. I don't, I don't even know how they would do that. I guess maybe through, like, a perpendicularity, but it's, like, logistically impossible. So um, now we have these... Uh, well, if you had night blood on the same planet... And oh, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You got to well, yeah, you, you have the 
you have these two groups of people who are on the same planet, one of whom is not originally from that planet and doesn't really belong there, but still can't leave. And so, like, of, of course, there's going to be conflict. And it, it's it's just a, as I was saying, it's a, it's all it's a messed up situation all around. And it's been it's been like this for thousands of years, and probably not going to, like these these tensions are likely not to be resolved anytime soon. Well, I mean, it's like what's going on with the U- U.S. It's like if we decided to give the natives back their land right now, where would the entire population of the U.S. go? It's not like we could go back to Britain for a lot of reasons. Yeah. So, like... Plagiarize reality. Yeah, basically. Like, <laughs> you know, both are kind of in an untenable situation. Mm-hmm. So, and unfortunately, instead of, you know, being resolved through debate or whatever it erupted into conflict and i don't necessarily blame any one side for that but i was gonna say something and i don't know if it was clever or not and then i forgot it Mm. but i thought i'd put a placeholder in there in case my curiosity is why did honor like the humans so much because it was honorable next (laughs) oh uh That, that is a good question Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, um, if they had a Don Shard-powered surge of transportation, they could probably get back to Ashen. That's what I was going to say. Mm, th- do they have a, a Don Shard that could do that? Mm, On Shard? I think that's spoilers for other books. Okay. <laughs> Don Shard, out now. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, even if they could get back to Ashen, you know, like n- most of them haven't grown up there. Right. They have no idea what the planet's know, like. And we don't even know what Ashen is like at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, is it is it even a livable place anymore? The whole reason they left was because they sort of ruined the planet, from what I understand, with surge binding. So, and, and the only kind of phrase we get about Ashen is in Arcanum Unbounded where Chris writes that there's like these floating cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what, what that's all about, but it, it, it's, I, I guess people still live there. That's confirmed. Right. But how habitable is it? How many, are there, are there room for hundreds of millions of people to just, to join the planet? I don't know. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know either. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to, uh, un- unless there's some particularly poignant, oh my God, I didn't even read those words before I said them particularly poignant right there. They're on the page. Did not. Perfect. Wow. <laughs> I am. Are we in a simulation? Maybe. I feel like we're in a simulation. <laughs> Anyways, uh, more on that later. All right, if uh, we can move on to criticism. Oh, go ahead. Well, there's one. There's one moment I wanted to mention. Yes. For talking about poignant moments, uh, which is the moment with Tuln in the climax, oh. which is one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite moments in the same. Book. Loved it. Uh, it's it, because you you have Tuln finally getting his memory back for this very brief period of time, and he's just so self-sacrificial that he thinks. You know, his immediate response to finding out that he held back the desolations for 4,500 years is gratefulness Mm -hmm. instead of um, horror, Mm -hmm. which is just 
it's it's such an incredible characterization of him. And I love that this it sort of comes out of nowhere, too. We haven't even really seen Tom that much in this book. Right. It still feels like a, the culmination of a lot of stuff that's been going on behind the scenes. Um, and yeah, Tom, that scene with Tom, it just it gets me. <laughs> it gets me, too. It really does. And, and he's talking with Ash, right? Um, yeah. And, and we're seeing it from Ash's point of view. So we're getting this buildup that Tom is going to be angry. Or, and, and and she's afraid that she's afraid of what is going to happen. And he just goes, what yeah. a gift you've given them. Like, ah, yeah, brilliant, freaking brilliant. It's, it's such a quick scene, too. It's just like it happens in the middle of the climax. Right. In the middle of all this other stuff going on. Yeah. And then just sort of moves on. We, we still don't really know that much about Tom and his past. Uh, yeah. But it, this is just like a a little tantalizing glimpse into his true character. It's right. Incredible. Right. I really liked, uh, at the climax where Dalinar is facing Odium and he's got the way of Kings and lift pops up and, uh, Dalinar is like, well, do you have a weapon? And lift is like, Nope, can't read. <laughs> do you know um there's this one artist who does comics based on the stormlight archive lomery do you know them i um, imagine they i've did, seen like, they did like a, a comic book of that entire scene it's like I, I like 10 pages or something oh really um yeah it's it's really great they they, they do they do art of so many critical scenes in the stormlight archive but especially like the climax of oathbringer there's uh, they do a lot of art of um, the, these moments near the end, and that moment in particular is That's great. Was portrayed very memorably by them. <laughs> it's such a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you had some discussion you wanted to do on social structures. Yeah. So regarding criticisms of Oathbringer, uh, one of the common ones I see brought up and I'm, I've been thinking about making a video on this, I might at some point, is how in both this book and Rhythm of War, compared to the first two books in the series, the, the class structures of Roshar, the divisions between light eyes and dark eyes, and all of the different nons and dons and substructures within mm -hmm. them are a lot less important than they were in the first two books. And you know, there are a few things here, like, for one thing, Kaladin sort of becomes a Light Ice because he is a Knight Radiant now, he has right. a Shard Blade, and that makes him become a Light Ice, which is a little... Sorry. It, it's a, Obviously, it's it's related to how the magic system works, like there's an explanation for it, but it's a little weird um, that becoming a Knight Radiant seemingly gets you a... It gets you into like a higher class um mm -hmm. and like kaladin kaladin doesn't see himself as a light eyes he sees himself as a dark eyes and yet he still is literally a light eyes like there's nothing he can really do to prevent that and right. it, it kind of feels like he in this book it feels like he sort of loses a lot of um what made him an underdog in the first two books mm -hmm. it feels like everything is a lot easier for him not only because he's powerful but because he's so respected he he is part of the upper class he no longer 
has the awkward experience of walking into a bar or somewhere with a bunch of light eyes and feeling out of place. Instead, he is part of the upper class. And so is everybody else in Bridge 4, or most of the people in Bridge 4, anyway, right. because they become squires as well. They get the light eyes eventually. And so as a result, we end up not having too many characters who are dark eyes, who are part of the lower class. And it feels like this whole section of the world is sort of cut off and uh, no longer as important to the story. Sure. Which is a real shame because in the first two books, that was one of the things I liked most about the world building. I thought um, Kaladin's struggles to survive in this class-based system were really compelling and um, really just like realistically portrayed. And now that's sort of gone. And obviously, you know, we're, we're focused more on the war with Odium now. So some of this stuff has to get sweeped under the rug at some point. But I, I wish it was I wish it was more at the forefront. I wish we had some characters who maintained the lower class status so that we still had some of the dynamics. We could still see more how class structures were changing as a result of the Knights Radiant coming into power, as opposed to just having it sort of be implied uh, as a result of it just not being mentioned that much anymore. Sure. Um, yeah, so it, I, I think this is a legitimate weakness of this book, uh, and I, I see why why some people uh, say that Oathbringer is less compelling than the original two books in terms of world building for that reason. Hmm. I, I also noticed this, and I'm going to be honest... Um, I don't notice a lot of things when I read books. So the fact that I did actually notice that discussions of the the non and the don and, and, and all the, the class structure had disappeared in Oathbringer um, and 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 moving forward, uh, it I I took it at seemingly face value of okay well he's explained how it works so don't really need to focus too much on it anymore but your arguments really do bring in the point like from my from my perspective even if it didn't really need to be focused on anymore it does feel like there's just an almost absolute lack of it and and I do think there would have been a happy medium there where people who weren't that keen on knowing everybody's non or done, uh, not, not that that's what the first two books had. Uh, I lost my train of thought, but ultimately that is an interesting valid criticism of the book. Uh, and I think it's something that even, people who aren't deep thinkers when they're reading would probably pick up on. So um, I'm glad you brought that up. And I think it's, it's, it's not something that's unique to this book because in, in fantasy and a lot of modern fantasy, especially there is a really common theme of characters starting out as lower class and working their way up to the upper class. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be like a really popular theme. And I kind of wish that, fewer fantasy books would do that because if you compare it to something like lord of the rings 
the character okay well frodo is like upper class by the standards of the shire mm-hmm. but the other hobbits not necessarily especially sam and they maintain that status throughout the entire series sure um they never they never really I, like sure they become they become famous but at the end of the story they still go back to living their ordinary lives and not that much has really changed in their day-to-day lives as a result of everything that has gone on sure um so and they don't become like extraordinarily powerful and for the first two books, Kaladin is sort of like that. Like he, he gains some status in the second book, um, his, and his life improves a lot, obviously. But it, with the third book, it, it's really he gains so much power that uh, the the sort of day to day struggles of his earlier life are are not that relevant anymore, um, which make his his chapters a little less interesting to read. I think there's just like that extra dynamic there that uh makes him makes him relatable and it makes him like compelling uh the way he interacts with the rest of the world and it's just i don't know it's sort of missing uh but yeah that's that's all i have to say about that yeah that's a that's a good point and i would be i would be uh interested in seeing more thoughts on that from you in in the form of a in the form of a video so add that into your bucket of motivation if that's something you want to do in the future okay i will do so (laughs) (laughs) no pressure uh i am trying to think if i have any other criticisms of the book and none are really popping into my mind so that's nice i think it's just it's a really solid draw i uh, like the way of kings and words of radiance i listened to it as an audiobook over reading it now that i'm reading it with my wife i'll probably read read it uh but i listened to the audiobook like a good alethi man so <laughs> cheers for me and really great book really peak fantasy i'm not sure it gets much better than that except maybe 500 pages of Shalon and Kaladin talking <laughs> for a... <laughs> you can't beat that, come on. <laughs> yeah. No, there's... Uh, I would also... I would I would really like... So we know for Stormlight 5 that we're supposed to ask Sanderson about whatever happened on July 18th. I would love seeing little snippets of scenes that were cut um, or frustrations that Sanderson has had with the characters during the writing, um, I think that would be entertaining to read or hear about. Um, yeah. But that's that's all extra. So I think we've come to the end of our review, unless there's anything else anybody needs to say. Mm, no, I don't think so. All right. Listeners, go forth and plagiarize reality. Nathaniel, thank you so much for being generous with your time and joining us on our path to reviewing the Stormlight Archive books. Indeed. We do have, I believe I have gotten on board that Cosmere chick for uh, reviewing Rhythm of War with us uh, sometime after oh. Dragonsteel Convention 2023. So, listeners, be looking forward to that. Uh, Nathaniel, do you have anything coming out for generic entertainment that you'd like the listeners to to stay tuned to? 
I, I don't plan my videos very far in advance, so I, I can't say. I, I did. I will say I started a Discord server very recently, so oh. if you want to join that, you can find that in the community tab on my channel. And there's lots of talk about like uh, the Cosmere and Wheel of Time and other fantasy series and sci-fi on there. So yeah, if that sounds like your thing, then go ahead and join. Fantastic. But, yeah, that, that's like that's all the only plug I wanted to. That's add. a good plug. I'll plug, you know, just uh, subscribe to, to Generic Entertainment. Mm -hmm. I have not been disappointed by any video, which is rare because most channels have at least something that disappoints me. So good I'll, do, I'll do my best to make a video that will disappoint me. That will disappoint you. Oh, man. What would we that need, even we look need like? consistency there in your, in your, in your <laughs> surfing experience. Uh, I guess you could do a video on how my minty take was just absolutely horrible uh you have my permission to use my audio if you if you want you can just be like that would probably disappoint me that would be such a weird okay. that would be <laughs> such a weird world don't do that you don't need to do that um, <laughs> i mean if you I'll, I'll try to try to add in some comments somewhere about <laughs> mintiness and and nobody else will get it but you'll know that that's specifically directed at you okay i'll be um, i'll be on the lookout <laughs> and yeah i'll be on the lookout for it fantastic well griff if you want to if you want to sign us off yep until next time don't panic world hoppers life before death strength before weakness monads and gonads before destination perfect Nice. The music you hear is part three, The Spirit, from Zavadilla's The Music of Elantris, produced by B-Roll Records, available now on Apple Music, Spotify, and most music providers. If you like what you hear, and you want others to hear it as well, please leave a rate and review. It really helps us get more listeners. 